You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It is February 1st, 2024 at 7.37 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And uh, I was touching on uh, exploration uh, last time, and I thought that I would continue on that, maybe focus a little bit on meaning. I think that in in the West, and uh, particularly with our sort of lopsided, um, incredibly unequal society where uh, meaning is often associated with legacy and uh, uh, making an impression on the culture I don't think that that's actually uh, what uh, we mean by uh, uh, finding meaning, finding fulfillment in, in your life. But from the Buddhist perspective, of course, we're we're narrowing down to the experience of the present moment and engaging in the experience of the present moment. So, really, when we talk about meaning and fulfillment, we're we're still talking about that. Uh, uh, moment by moment experience rather than something different than that. What is uh, an engaged, fulfilling moment? Uh, I was talking earlier today about that. Uh, I like symphonic music and I have a, a favorite conductor who's maybe for 15 years the same one. Uh, whose name is Vasily Pachenko, and he is the musical director of the Royal Philharmonic. And they came through Los Angeles on a tour and played at the uh, uh, Performing Arts Center uh, on the Northridge campus. I drove out there uh, to see the performance. And uh, in the experience of the orchestra playing and him conducting Tchaikovsky's uh, Sixth Symphony, uh, the, the way that the, the, the third movement unfolded was absolutely mesmerizing. This is not an experience I have that often. Hold on, Lucy wants to come in. I was talking about it. Uh, at the Northridge Center where this concert happened, I was uh, on the young side of the audience. <laughs> but I was sitting next to this couple. Uh, they were quite uh, fun. And at a certain point, she looked at me and she said, would you like a butterscotch? And she then dug in her purse and pulled out this butterscotch. Uh, now, <laughs> what does a butterscotch mean to you? <clears throat> and how did you assign that meaning to it? Uh, I uh, find butterscotches attached to the meaning of my uh, grandmother, Haas, my uh, father's mother, because when we went over to her house, she had a big dish of uh, hard candy, and we were allowed to pick one, and I liked the butterscotch. Now, 
the butterscotches that she had were, uh, uh, you may have seen them, they were sort of a disc, uh, sort of a yellowy disc with yellow cellophane around them and solid all the way through. But this was not the butterscotch of the woman sitting next to me, uh, pulling it out of her Louis Vuitton bag. It was, uh, it had a soft center. But in that moment, of course, the taste of the butterscotch elicited the whole thread of meaning that I have associated with butterscotch. It's uh, when we were kids, we would go to a, the diner, which was called B&G's, and we would get butterscotch sundae, so uh, vanilla ice cream with butterscotch. Um, but in, in each moment, because of the way that the human condition operates, meanings are assigned to the sensing experience. And what we want to be able to do is mentalize fast enough to recognize how the meaning of the present moment is being shaped by the definitions that we assign. Maybe sitting there, uh, well, if you don't like symphonic music, you probably wouldn't have been sitting there. But if you did and you were and you had no history of butterscotch, maybe it would be a, a curiosity and not something that had a richness to it. I quite enjoyed uh, the experiences of my grandmother. and uh, It was uh, pleasant to have that richness uh, of filling part of the moment of being there and, and understanding that. In each moment, we have the capacity to sense the object that can be sensed. When there's contact, the... Uh, sensing experience comes into consciousness. Consciousness is not the self-experience in this sense. Uh, this precedes the self-experience. It's then uh, evaluated for urgency. Does it need immediate attention? Does it not matter whether we give it attention? Is there time for something pleasant? Uh, and then uh, there's a queue of sensing experiences formed. Urgent material always uh, cuts to the head of the line and then it's compared to the perceptual database and the threads of meaning, all of the previously experienced sensing moments that were defined in the way we're about to define this sensing moment happens. And that whole thread of meaning attaches and it rolls from ultimate reality, the pure sensing experience into conceptual reality, which has all of those meanings assigned uh, we don't take a complete inventory, a neutral inventory of everything that's around us and then uh, form a depiction of that. We really uh, select uh, what has meaning to us. So it's a highly curated experience, picking the things that matter to us and then forming the, the perception of the meaning of the moment. So we live not in what's happening, but in what is happening means to us. And so when we talk about finding meaning or finding fulfillment in the present moment, what we're really talking about is engaging in activity that uh, activates that whole system in a way that is fulfilling to us, that 
matters to us. Of course, when we find ourselves in environments where we don't have a lot of choice about the things that are meaningful to us, then we think of it as a sort of desert-like environment, absence of what's meaningful. That making sense so far? So that there isn't a way of discovering the meaning of the present moment without, of course, uh, understanding that it's made up of the, the uh, conditioned experience that you have. In addition to the actual experience that you have, there's the capacity to imagine and make meaning. Uh, this is imp an important feature to understand because if we are in a novel situation where we haven't had the experience before, we can then create a, a, a definition, a meaning of it and assign it and then begin this thread. So what you notice is that some threads are old and they go way back. The, the taste of butterscotch goes all the way back practically to the beginning of my memory of myself in the world, which has a kind of richness to it. There's a lot of uh, positive associations with that. But, but it's impossible, really, I think, to have every experience and have a history of every experience. And so the imagination plays a, a vital role in this. One of the things that happens in an adverse childhood experiences, of course, is that we begin to limit the capacity to imagine things. We pinch them off, I like to say. Um, because uh, imagining something that we can't have is too painful, and so we restrict the capacity to pay attention to understand what's actually happening. And so part of this exploration of how do you make meaning, what the database is like, and also the capacity to imagine is part of this process of, uh, of uh, exploring what is uh, meaningful just in this moment, that small moment by moment experience. Then uh, what would we say is fulfilling? And this is so idiosyncratic, so individual that really um, we can use descriptions of exploring as guidelines, but we have to begin this process ourselves and what, uh, what resonates for us. In the experience of learning to explore, which really starts about one year old, a part of this is also going to be the way in which your caregivers valued what was meaningful to you and reflected back to you its value. This uh, may not be what actually happened, you may have grown up in an environment where what the caregivers thought was valuable was what was reflected back to you as valuable. And if your uh, capacities, your uh, sense of meaning and interest 
was not in that group, then you may have had the experience of that authentic uh, interest and exploration was devalued or restricted in some way. And so the associations with that process of finding meaning uh, will carry that restriction. And you may find that uh, your capacity to explore was blocked, and so you didn't really learn to do it. And this is what is more the territory of preoccupied people. Dismissing people really are, are more organized around uh, the kinds of things that their caregivers wanted from them, and they, they get also quite oriented to the things that are valuable culturally, whether or not that corresponds to what's interesting um, on an individual level. Disorganized people, of course, uh, don't have the capacity to emotionally regulate well enough to go uh, uh, into a deep exploratory way, path, and it's constantly disrupted by the the, the dysregulation uh, and uh, fearfully avoided people, of course, withdraw from social in interaction into themselves to try and auto-regulate and uh, fearfully preoccupied. It, it becomes so chaotic that, that uh, there isn't the capacity for follow-through. Preoccupied people who have their exploration limited in childhood really depend on uh, other people's exploration uh, to carry them. And also they tend to look for the meaningfulness of life in relationships, not in exploration, not in finding meaning. And usually there's a sense of dissatisfaction in doing that because relationships are really meant to support the exploration and not, not provide the sense of meaning. Dismissing people look for culturally valuable uh, activities because they tend to transact uh, care rather than collaborate and reciprocate care. It's the really the realm of secure people who uh, in childhood experienced the interest of the caregivers in what mattered to them and then the support in being able to explore that, find out what works and what doesn't. And uh, they have a real advantage in terms of exploration. Uh, they come out of childhood with a sense of value in, in pursuing things that are meaningful to them. And they have had the support to learn how to explore, to understand what that is. Is that making sense in terms of the the experience of meaningfulness in engaging in the activity and uh, the fulfillment of, of doing that. Another one of the passions I have uh, in exploration and finding meaning is photography. And uh, that, that also goes back to my mother. So in that early childhood experience in seeing and watching the things that uh, my caregivers engaged in. That was one of the things that had real interest for her. And 
in my uh, ability to in engage with her while she was engaging, that also had meaning for me in terms of that connection. So there's that association. But the the way in which she explored photography and the way that I do are are vastly different. She was a, a, a pictorialist, if you know your photographic history. And I am really more engaged in the narrative of things. And so what I like to make are these, these visually illustrated narratives that are very prosaic, very subtle, uh, not the, the high drama that we're used to. <laughs> Nothing blows up. 10,000 people are not machine gunned. Just the ordinariness of life. I really think that coming into the, the moment by moment rhythm of your life and uh, the, the typical ordinariness of uh, most of our lives, getting up, eating, working in some way at something, eating, working at something, eating, uh, socializing, going to sleep, this uh, rhythm of life that we have, the slow process of aging, the slow process of gaining experience and integrating that into these uh, narratives of, of what our lives are, are like uh, and finding in that a richness that gets you out of bed in the morning. Of course, if you can't find the richness in what you're doing, it's hard to get up. It's hard to engage in things. We get bogged down by the senselessness of it. This is a, a conversation really around meditation practice. And so uh, we use the meditation practice to explore the nature of how all of this unfolds in some sense, making sense of the meaning of it. And as your practice deepens and you get closer to the direct experience of the nature of this human condition, I often think what arises are these experiences of sacredness in all of this. And then uh, each moment takes on that character of sacredness. I remember when I was first practicing, there was a lot of conversation around the preciousness of this human life and the preciousness of finding the teaching of the Buddha and the uh, unusual nature of that uh, combination. It was described as if you were a sea turtle and you just at random hopped up to the surface for a breath of air, and you happened to get uh, a pop-up in the center of a life ring that had fallen off of a passing ship, that uh, unique quality. I've uh, had a lot of trouble imagining the unique quality of it because I have trouble uh, connecting directly with uh, the whole cosmology of 31 levels of existence and 
what really feels almost like a competition for higher birth. In the Theravada school, of course, uh, you uh, gain liberation. Uh, you take the third path of liberation and you, you, you're you a non-returner. You're not reincarnated in the, the Mahayana vow, the Bodhisattva vow to be, to do something that guarantees your reincarnation and the commitment to reincarnate until all beings are enlightened. The conversation around thousands of lifetimes. None of that really makes so much sense to me from a, this orientation around the Georgeness of things around here. <laughs> but I also don't mind the confusion and uh, I don't need a certainty. So maybe that's the way this particular view works. Early on in, in my practice, um, there was a conversation around bodhicitta. Bodhi is uh, awakened, citta's heart, the awakened heart. And that the meaningfulness of life comes from that, the heart opening. And then the heart moves uh, into a direction of service. And, and without really needing to do anything in particular, just the practice, just the seeing of the human condition, just coming into a relationship to it that matches it. And the heart breaks open and you reorient towards surf service. I might say in my life, I've done, I've done that because I do a lot of uh, service for different people. Um, and it happened all on its own without me having to really make much of a decision or have having much resistance to doing it. It just seems uh, fulfilling to help. I think of it more as I needed so much help and I was so ineffective in terms of being able to persuade people to do it that, that I'm quite grateful for the people that did help. And it was really hard to find that. I. And uh, um, and so I like to to uh, pay that back in a way, that sense of helping people. But I do find culturally, um, in the way that we operate, um, the uh, there's not much sense of that. How do I put it? I was talking to somebody about it and they were describing what I was describing in this sort of culture that we have of, uh, I really think of it as uh, a culture of appropriation where we just take whatever it is uh, that we think is a good uh, thing to take uh, and we don't really assign uh, a lineage to it. And uh, we have then, uh, out of all of these pieces, constructed uh, a culture. 
I was talking to a Chinese woman who grew up in China, uh, and she uh, uh, laughingly said, yes, our 200-year-old culture <laughs> that's been assembled from everyone else's culture without regard to the origins of anything, uh, and, and we think of it as the, 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 the true path uh, of meaning. And so what we find is the, the discarding of uh, older experience, uh, older people and the experience that they gather and the urgency of the youthfulness of finding something out. Um, as you get older, of course, what you see is that each generation comes up not knowing anything and uh, make the same decisions around what's happening that each generation has made, except that it's on the back of the generations before and what they've developed. But because there's no understanding of that and no real value to that, it's just what this generation has discovered, not understanding the that trajectory. Uh, I was talking to someone else. I talk to a lot of people, as you might imagine, in, in, in the role that I have. I, I carry on these conversations. And he said that actually the word for what I'm describing, which is the abandonment of the wisdom of older people and an understanding of how this moment was dependent on the moment before it in that uh, Buddhist frame is colonialism, which made me laugh really hard. If you look at it in contrast, say, to the native uh, understanding of things, whereas these traditions, these ways of being in the world are handed down and they're valued and there's an un un the understanding of the relationship to what has gone before is built into the education. We don't really have that so much. How do we change that? I would like to change that. One of the ways in which we understand all of these things, and it's encapsulated, is in learning the nature of culture uh, as we're growing up. So all of that stuff we don't have to learn all of that stuff. That part isn't necessary. The culture hands it to us, how everything works. And it's useful that, that indoctrination into the, to the culture in which you're born, because it allows you then to function in the, in the, in the social group but with that disconnection from how we got here. The, the values seem off. So in the Buddhist sense, of course, what we're talking about is karma and the, that understanding that the conditions of the present moment are, are dependent on 
the conditions of the moment before this happened. And the, the conditions of the next moment will be dependent on the conditions of this moment. That in each moment, what opens up are the entire range of possibilities that you could pick. And then as soon as you pick one, all of the possibilities drop away except for the one that you picked. Then in the next moment, opens up all of the possibilities that are linked to the choice that you made in the moment before. And this runs all the way back, each moment, proceeding, uh, containing that range of choices which were dependent on the moment before. To begin to see that. What happens, uh, you know, I describe these things, uh, butterscotches and symphonic music and and uh, photography, and I'm also describing privilege in a way. What happens if you didn't have that? My grandmother, uh, solid on my mother's side, uh, grew up in poverty. She had no food security, no housing security, and a great drive to not have that for her children. And so she managed to accomplish that. In, in her lifetime, that her children didn't, didn't have food insecurity. Her children did not have housing insecurity. But there was no sense of that, really, in, in the way that she described it. Um, when I was 16, growing up in the Midwest where I did, that was the age that you got your driver's license because the distances were too big and the public transportation wasn't good enough. Uh, and so uh, all of us kids, all of us teenagers who, who could, again, this is a expression of affluence, learn to drive. And uh, I liked to, to drive. And so I was happy to take people wherever they wanted to go. And my grandmother asked me if I would take her to a wedding in um, Indiana. We grew up in Chicago. Um, and uh, she wanted to go to a wedding uh, of uh, one of her cousin's kids. And uh, so I drove her down there and when we got there and uh, entered into the church, it was clear that this was a Catholic ceremony. And I grew up in a fairly non-religious Protestant family, so it was quite unusual. And I said to my grandmother, uh, sitting in the church, we have Catholics in the family? And she said, shh, I'll tell you later. And so as we were driving home, she said, growing up the way that you did, you'll never understand the way that I grew up, which was in a log cabin with a sod roof on the wheat, uh, on the plains of Alberta in the middle of a wheat field. Uh, she was about 4'10", so a little Irish woman. And uh, she said, the, the doorway to the, the house was so low that she had to stoop to get out of it. And I grew up in this big house. She said that when she was 
17, she stood in the front yard, turned 360 degrees, and all she could see were wheat fields. And the voice inside her head said, you got to get the hell out of here. And uh, she said she spent a year talking her mother into talking her father into sending her to college. And so they would look at the magazines and look for schools where rich people would go to uh, so that she could go and make a good marriage. When they were putting her on the train, her dad said, you have one year to get married. Otherwise, you have to come back to the farm. And as her mother was putting her on the train, her mother said to her, now is not a good time to be an Irish Catholic. Better you were a British Protestant. So she said she got on the train an Irish Catholic and she got off British Protestant. Boom. And she was right. I have no concept of what that would be like, really. Uh, the, the harshness, the difficulty of that. And then to transform herself from a kid, grew up on a farm into somebody who could manage a, a Chicago society. But still, she found meaning that was embedded in that same flow of experience that we all have. And she was able to organize her life in a way that a lot of it was spent in the, those uh, activities. And so uh, each of us will have the things that happen to us and the meanings that we've associated. And the exploration really then is to, to figure out what is the things uh, that when we engage in them in the present moment, uh, it the experience of doing it is fulfilling. That we're we're um, engaged in the experience of the moment completely. You notice sometimes when you're engaged in the moment of something that you don't really want to do, there's a constant reflection in self of irritation and having to do it. And that when you find yourself in, uh, in a fulfilling, engaging moment, that that alarm system of the self is absent and you're simply absorbed in, in doing it. But all of that is tied into those, that whole process of, of fulfilling that perceptual database with experiences and that preferences or versions that arise from it. And so part of this practice, of course, is is pulling that all open, pulling that all apart and seeing what's actually there. And then orienting the present moment experience in uh, valuing what there is. This is the way that we change the experiences of the past, that changing of the meaning of it finding that the sense of fulfillment in it. Maybe it's the that opening of the heart that leads us into this 
um, connection to other people that's uh, useful in supporting that deeper exploration. The human being, or is it the human doing, actually? <laughs> the engagement, the constant engagement. Equanimity, the fully engaged and perfectly balanced, but not still. Have you ever seen those um, surfers who like to surf the giant waves? Uh, you have this huge wall of water, and then stuck somewhere in the middle of it is this little surfboard sticking out with a surfer on top of it, and it and it looks so dangerous. And, amazing and the stillness of the of the that concentrated surfer a tiny little thing the vastness of the ocean um, but when you look closer of course they're not so they're just constantly adjusting constantly moving to keep the balance and so that's that idea of equanimity fully engaged and at the same time balancing as an activity and an active uh, stance and at, at the same time understanding the direction that it feels more fulfilling and more meaningful and the direction that it feels less fulfilling and less meaningful and really orienting toward that uh, sense of fulfillment. So what are you going to do? <clears throat> what matches that for you? And can you begin to see the obstacles that arise so you don't do it? A lot of times that's, again, touching into that early conditioning of this isn't for you, this isn't worthwhile. You can't have that. setting that aside and really listening deeply to the things that matter to you. Whether or not they have cultural relevance or not. Of course, um, keeping your non-harming stance, right? <laughs> There's no permission to be an asshole in, in what I'm saying. <laughs> How's that? Um, so why don't we do some Vipassana tonight? We'll start with a little bit of concentration practice and then go into Vipassana. All right, let go of the meditation. Any comments or questions about that? That was really nice. Thank you for the guidance. Good, thanks. So not this weekend, but the following weekend, we're starting a meditation and addiction series of half day long. So for the three Saturdays, uh, starting on the 9th, I think. 
repent, look. Saturday the 10th, for three Saturdays. Uh, this uh, month, the workshop is going to be uh, um, uh, how to date like a secure person, even if you're not yet secure. So come along to that if you want to talk about uh, relational dynamics and secure functioning and how to navigate all of that. Um, it's... Uh, in May, uh, we're doing a two-week retreat, uh, which is a metavipassana retreat. So the first week is uh, meta practice, and the second week is vipassana practice. Uh, I think that you could come either to the meta only or the vipassana only, but uh, or consider coming to both the meta and the vipassana. It's going to be outside of danced uh, in Poland. And I'm going to do in at the end of May and the beginning of June uh, a short uh, four-day intensive on level one in Utrecht for the last week of uh, May there. Um, we will be doing another uh, level one series in March uh, and then starting a, another level two in April, uh, that will appear variously on the website. So uh, that's what's coming up. Take a look at it. See if you can find interest in it and attend. Um, I offer the teaching freely, um, but I do hope that you'll consider making a donation to Metagroup if you can. If you have the resources. It helps support me and also the work Metagroup is doing. There's a link on the website for that. Thank you for your practice. Good to see you, and we'll see you soon. Bye.